This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Diversity at Facebook is a big issue. I was just out there in Menlo Park, California at Facebook headquarters recently, and so I had a chance to ask this week's guest, Reggie Murphy, how having a diverse workforce affects what Facebook creates. Oh, it, it, it affects it significantly because everyone comes from somewhere. Everyone was born from somewhere. And everyone has different experiences in terms of their educational background, their life experiences, and experiences in their career. And you put all of that together, and that's what makes working here at Facebook so awesome because all of these different types of people from these different backgrounds come together, and, and, and that's where innovation happens. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. No other email service provider is better when it comes to both functionality as well as customer service. Sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea for a domain name, you want to secure that, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it super easy for you to not only find the domain name that you're looking for, but to get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Speaking of saving money, we've got another sale going on this week in our store. Remember, we've got a store where you can get hoodies and t-shirts, mugs and tote bags. That's at revisionpath.com forward slash store. Uh, It's a really quick sale. It only is going to go from Tuesday through Friday of this week. And you'll save 15% off t-shirts using the promo code T-SHIRTFUN. That's T-S-H-I-R-T-F-U-N. We'll put a link in the show notes. You want to go ahead and jump on that quickly. Again, that sale is going to end on Friday. That's November the 11th. Also this week, we've got our November AMA on the 9th. That's going to be at 8 p.m. Eastern with entrepreneur and digital strategist Brandon Butler. Now, longtime listeners to the show may remember Brandon from way back in episode seven in October 2013. There's a lot that's happened in those three years since then. And so Brandon's going to be sharing his knowledge on a number of different topics, including marketing, website flipping, million dollar dog walks. I mean, well, you have to ask him about that one yourself. So um, again, our November AMA chat is going to be on November 9th, 8 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be in our Slack community in the Ask Me Anything channel. Uh, Check the show notes for a link where you can join our Slack community. We've also got a new review from iTunes. We had a lot going on this week. Uh, this comes from Irvine, who is writing all the way from the Philippines. Uh, Irvine's review is titled, One of My Favorite Podcasts. Maurice brings great episodes every week, and I'm glad he made this to focus on black designers. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Irvine. Thank you for leaving that great review. Again, for any of you that are out there listening, if you've really gotten anything from the show, I love getting these reviews and reading them on the show. I really, really Um, It means a lot to me. It lets me know that you all are part of this as well. And I'm not just kind of speaking into the ether here. (laughs) 
So again, Irvine, thank you. And thanks to all of you that have sent in reviews on iTunes. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we went down to 38 patrons. Uh, we're now at a new total of $259 per month. Again, I want to thank everybody that's pledged your support and your appreciation for the show. It really does mean a lot. It really helps me keep this going from month to month with regular expenses and things like that. If you've gotten any sort of value from what we're doing here at Revision Path, if you enjoy the interviews, if you like the guests, if you've learned anything, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get some really great perks like early access to future episodes and free Revision Path goodies. Just head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and you'll make that happen. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month and it's a really great and affordable way to support the show on a regular basis. Now let's get on to this week's interview. I had the opportunity last month to go to Facebook headquarters in Menlo Park where I interviewed a number of different product designers and such. So the interview that I'm doing uh, this week is with UX research manager Reggie Murphy. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Reggie Murphy, and I am a UX research manager here at Facebook. I manage a, several teams that work on various products that Facebook ships. And what exactly is UX research for those that are out there listening and want to know more about it? So UX research is understanding how people use and interact with various interfaces. So, for example, you've probably have been to many websites that don't work very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you may have used mobile apps that don't work very well. True, true. The UX researcher really tries to understand how we can help improve those experiences so that you can get what you want done by using those websites and, and, and apps. How did you first get into that field? It's an interesting question. <laughs> I was doing UX research when I didn't really know I was doing it. So back in grad school, when I was in PhD program, I I was in grad school, this is probably going to date me, but I was in grad school when the internet was becoming the internet. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So this is in 1995 when Mm -hmm. I went back to school to uh, get a PhD in communications at the University of Tennessee. And during my first year is when Windows 95 came out. And that's when the university was installing these graphical browsers. So at first we were using Unix email systems. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, you know, I remember how Unix was. I remember, yeah. <laughs> so we all got our first website and, our, and, and we were learning HTML and how to build these web pages. And I was a teaching assistant or a graduate teaching associate and I was teaching and I was teaching my class how to do it. And so in my program as I was preparing for what I wanted to do for my write for my dissertation, I began to see how media companies were trying to use the internet to, you know, to expand and to show who they were. So from a lot of my classes that I was taking, I started conducting research on why people were using email. So when we first got email, I did a research project for one of my qualitative research classes, and I recruited a bunch of people and I just sat down with them and I talked to them about, so tell me about this thing called email and what it means in your life. And I never (laughs) forget the first interview. This woman was telling me, she says, look, I'm emailing my mom and my mom just emailed me back. How cool is that? Wow. It sounds like those dated ads that you see with like pop stars, you know? Exactly. So this is like (laughs) 95, 96. 
And so I was essentially doing UX research right there. And I really didn't know it. So I was asking people to walk me through their experience utilizing this technology. And so my graduate program wasn't really focused on that, mm-hmm. but it was exactly what I was doing. And then as I grew into and, and my graduate work evolved, it just became a thing that I was doing. Now, that's really interesting that 20 years ago that the, the groundwork was sort of already being laid for what you do right now. Right. And I didn't even know. I didn't know it. I mean, I knew that I was getting a Ph.D. in communications. I was studying information science. Uh-huh. I was taking consumer behavior courses, statistics. You know, so I was learning how to be a quant researcher as well as learning qualitative research techniques. Mm-hmm. But I was studying media at that time and media was getting involved in the Internet. But it but it wasn't all coming together even at that point. Mm-hmm. I was just studying it and it was so new that. All I was trying to do was just understand why people were using the internet. So my dissertation was, the title of my dissertation was The Value of Radio Station Websites. <laughs> I know, crazy, huh? And so what I, I put a, a link to an online survey, which had never been done uh-huh. at that time, a link on about 30 radio station websites, classic rock and roll, mm-hmm. mind you, all across the country. And I asked a number of questions to really understand what this phenomena of websites, how it was resonating with people who were listening to these radio stations and then going on the Internet and finding them and yeah. what that was all about. So basically, my dissertation was UX research. I just totally didn't know it mm-hmm. at the time. <laughs> when did it, I guess, occur in your career that what you were doing was UX research? Since you said you didn't start off knowing that. It, it didn't occur to me until probably in the mid-2000s, like around 2005 and six, when I was at USA Today, and usatoday.com had launched, and I started really understanding, you know, doing more research with, with, with the Gannett company where I ended up. Mm-hmm. That's when I realized it, because I don't know if, if the term UX research was even around. I don't remember it. I remember coming to Intuit in Palo Alto in 1998 and conducting a usability research project with Excite.com. Oh, wow. And You remember Excite.com? I remember, yeah. I remember doing a study on their shopping engine back then. Mm -hmm. And that was UX research, but we called it usability testing. But it was UX research. I mean, I was sitting down next to someone by a computer asking them to do certain things on the excite.com platform. And, and we were recording it. We were asking their opinions and getting a reaction and we were documenting it and reporting it back to the developers to say, Hey, these are things that people really love. And these are things that people are having problems with. These are some suggestions on fixing it. But it wasn't until like 2005 and six that the term UX user experience really started to uh, come into play. And I started reading about it and Jacob Nielsen I started reading some reports by him and his company, Mm -hmm. and that's when I knew, okay, this is UX research is what I'm doing. So I guess within what you do at Facebook, as much as you can talk about it, Mm -hmm. as a UX research manager, are there specific projects that you work on, or is it as the website as a whole? Like, How does that factor into what you do here? My team supports the product managers, product designers, and engineers, content strategists, 
that work on building the platform on the mobile app, on what we call www, which is the website. And what my team does is that we try to understand to the best of our ability how people are using the various features and functionality across these platforms. Android, iOS, so anywhere you can get Facebook, my team is studying those experiences and studying people who are using Facebook on all of those experiences. And what we try to do is try to understand how they are interacting with the various, these various features and functionality. Mm-hmm. What problems are they having and, and how the, the, the platform is or is not supporting what they are trying to do. See, UX research is really about like you are using a mobile app or you're using a website to achieve a certain goal. Mm-hmm. And in Facebook, hey, maybe you're trying to connect. Like, you know, Facebook, we, you know, the mission of the company is to create an open and connected world. And so we're trying to empower people through sharing. And so my team is really looking at, you know, what are some of the barriers to that? Like, what is blocking people from achieving those goals? And we're studying it really any which way you can think about it. We are studying it. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to the product managers and design managers and the engineering folks, and we're saying, these are the things that are, that are really exciting for people. These are the things that are working really well, and they're loving it. Here are the things that they're not loving very much. And here are some suggestions on how we think that you can redesign it so that it would improve their experience. And so a couple of teams that I work on that I can talk about is, I mean, the, one of the products that was uh, relaunched just recently was uh, Workplace. Um, it is the... Uh, kind of an enterprise application or enterprise tool that Facebook, it's, it's been around for almost, uh, yeah, it's been around for a while now and we just relaunched it globally. Mm-hmm. And this is something that um, the company has been working on for a while because internally we used, we used Facebook uh, at work is what we previously called it. And it was exactly like Facebook, but we were using it as a, you know, as a productivity tools. We would form groups and we would share things in those groups. And so now the company has created this product so that other companies can take Facebook and utilize this tool inside their companies. And so that's something that my team has worked on. And we worked on everything from the usability aspect as well as the marketing, branding aspect. We, we, um, we conducted the research that really supported some dis- the decisions that were made in how the product was named, the content within the product. And so it's a pretty diverse set of research that we conducted to help fuel what the product looks like. So it kind of sounds like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, it sounds like the designers here, or the product designers, however, what their titles are, they don't just go into blindly creating things. They have to get that data from somewhere in order to make informed decisions about design. And that generally comes from your team, from UX researchers, right? Ab- absolutely. In order to give people the, you know, the, the power to share, it, it requires a lot of innovation. And so research permeates really every aspect of design here at Facebook. And what the design team really needs in order to, they need assistance to support the decisions that they make. Now, for example, a designer can create anything at any time. However, you know, you can create something and, and then have someone use it and, and the experience could fail. 
Yeah. And, you know, one of the principles here at Facebook is, is hey, you know, move fast, break things. <laughs> and it's okay to fail. And it's up to the UX research team to really understand, well, well, how can we learn from that failure? You know, what is failing so that you can improve, you can improve that experience and, and design something better. And so research is, is a tool. It's the information that these designers can use, that the product managers can use, and that the engineering and content strategists can use in order to develop and improve uh, the product. For those that might want to go into UX research, I know we have UX designers that might be listening, but even for anyone that is listening to what you're saying and thinks, I can do that, what would you recommend them studying or going into? Since my experience is kind of like, I just, <laughs> I hate to say that I sort of fell into it, but <laughs> I kind of did. <laughs> right, right. But I think if you really want to be systematic about it, I think most of the researchers on my team have backgrounds and degrees in social psychology. Okay. Human computer interaction. There are a lot of schools out there now that have invested in these programs. Psychology. Um, this, just a study of how people think and how people do things online. So those are some fields that you could gravitate towards. But I think you know, if you are a designer and maybe you want to make a pivot, then I think doing all the things that you can do to explore. I know that uh, Alan Cooper workshops. I know there's Cooper University. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Nielsen Norman group does a lot of workshops. I've mentioned Jacob Nielsen before. That can at least give you, open your eyes a little bit to how, you know, what the differences are in terms of what a researcher will do and what a designer will do. Mm-hmm. And it'll just give you some, uh, that'll at least get you started. But I think that if, you know, becoming a UX researcher in this business, it's about getting the experience. So that means getting into the lab and actually doing it, interviewing people. So when I look at hiring people on my team, I look at people who have experience conducting usability research. That is going into a lab, showing someone what we call a stimulus, Mm -hmm. and then getting them to react to it, you documenting it, and then sharing those results with the people who are creating this product. You know, that's a pretty typical skill set that we look for. But in addition to that, you know, you may start thinking about, well, I need to talk to a lot of people about what their experiences experience is using a, a product. So that may require a quantitative assessment. So that's where some of the graduate work helps. If mm-hmm. you have taken some courses in statistics and quantitative analysis, those kinds of things help. You can find that in an undergraduate program. So that's why I was saying a degree in sociology or a degree in psychology usually helps or a minor in, psych- in, in those disciplines. Or if you're in graduate school and you're thinking about it, then you're looking at more like um, consumer behavior, anthropology. We A lot of people on my team have backgrounds in ethnographic research. Mm-hmm. So that's going out into the field. Um, and you may have taken courses in anthropology. All those are relevant disciplines that help build the skills to be a UX researcher. It's really good that those types of, of skills that you mentioned can still be used in the design industry mm-hmm. and people don't necessarily have to be a quote-unquote designer or go to design school in order to be a part of it because what you do actually helps inform the decisions that those people make, which is really good. Yeah, absolutely. So before you started at Facebook, you worked for a long time in newspapers. You mentioned earlier you were working right. uh, at Gannett, which right. is USA Today, a bunch of other 
other uh, periodicals. And I think you worked there during what I think is like a really critical time for the change in newspapers. Talk to me kind of about some of the stuff that you did during that time. Wow, that's, yeah, I was there for 12 years. And I first started with the Gannett Company working specifically with the USA Today brand. And I was a market researcher, so I was hired as a market research manager there. I was doing research specifically on the print product at that time. And the dot-com, what we call the dot-com product, wasn't really taken off at that time. Because if you recall, a lot of newspaper companies, they were looking at the internet like, that's a fad. Right. You know, that's not going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then when the dot-com bust happened, they were like, I told you so. (laughs) And then in 2003 and four, the internet was coming back and beginning. And companies that really got on board and were moving fast with it were the ones who were winning. And I think the Gannett Company at the time, I think, started to realize that and started to invest more in the website. And so my job changed and I began to not only uh, do market research about what people were doing and inter- and how they were in- engaging with the printed products that we had. Uh, I was w- trying to understand, well, now that this company has a hundred, it was over a hundred newspapers, well, they got over a hundred websites. Mm-hmm. What are they doing on these websites? And we were wrestling with the issue of Are they just taking that newspaper and putting it online, which a lot of them were doing, which was totally the wrong thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) And you should have seen some of those websites and (laughs) the Gannett Company, they were a mess. I mean, but I mean, now there were a lot of other companies that uh, companies out there, their websites were a mess, too. Yeah. I mean, that was a time (laughs) when I think a lot of people's websites were a mess. It was. was And we were all kind of figuring it out. Right. They were trying to figure it out. And so the the company um, invested in a a digital strategy, I guess, right around 2008, nine. And so I was involved with traveling around the country, conducting usability research in Great Falls. Where was I? I was in, I was in South Dakota. I was in wow. uh, Nevada. I was in our, I mean, newspapers in large, medium, and small places. Yeah, because um, Gannett had newspapers, newspapers everywhere. They still do. And I was interviewing people, asking them, you know, tell me about your experience using this newspaper website. And you know, and where we netted out was that the company needed to develop a really succinct strategy on, you know, trying to figure out what the digital presence of a newspaper product could be online, and it needed to scale. At that time, you had a hundred different uh, what we were what they were called at the time webmasters mm-hmm. trying to do their thing online, and it was not scaling. It was not working, especially at the smaller properties. And so I was involved with some discussions on trying to figure out well, what should these websites look like. And we were there were firms, there were companies out there trying to come in and help large media companies say, well, you know, maybe we should build out the templates to try to help scale this so that these smaller companies or smaller properties could build very easily experiences without a whole lot of uh, effort and manpower. Mm-hmm. You know, you could do it centrally which is what the company ultimately started doing and what a lot of companies in both television, newspaper, and, and otherwise started doing over the course between 2008, 9, and 10. But it was definitely an interesting time because even and, and then at that time, revenue started to fall. Mm-hmm. So AOL was still huge mm-hmm. back then. People were still getting CDs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> for the AOL. So, and AOL was taking a lot of these ad dollars, digital dollars, and newspaper companies weren't figuring out how to monetize at that time. So we were wrestling with that as well. 
And so it was definitely an interesting time and interesting being at a company that was, I think, really one of the biggest in the U.S. and trying to help them figure it out. Mm-hmm. And during that time, was there anything specific that you learned that you're starting to see newspapers do now? You can't underestimate the Internet. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Number one. Right, right. And you must move quickly in order to innovate. And I think that's definitely something that Gannett learned the hard way. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe that towards the end of my career there, they started testing and failing at things. And I believe we we started doing something and we started getting assistance. I mean, we brought in IDEO. We brought in Innosight. A lot of these companies that were involved in innovation and helping companies develop their innovation strategy, we brought those folks in to to help. And I think that I I think the company learned that you know, sometimes you don't have the internal capabilities to do the things that you need to do. So you need to, you know, hire some consultants to help mm-hmm. or train people, send people to train to conferences or, or programs to get to build the skills necessary. I, I think at that time, we had a pretty decent digital workforce. But I don't think, I think we underestimated how many we needed. Like, we needed developers. Yeah. We needed people with that skill set. And... Where do we find them? So now you've got recruitment and HR involved. And I think you saw a shift in many departments across the company between 2008 and 9 and 10 because the company really realized that in order to to catch up, not stay ahead. I mean, at that time, we were trying to catch up because the market tanked back in 08, 09, mm-hmm. you know, and people thought everything was going to hell in a handbasket and, you know, revenues were down. And so the company had to make a serious pivot towards innovation. And I think that was one of the biggest lessons that, that they learned, that you, that you can't underestimate you know, the future. You, know, you really have to build for the future by, on a lot of fronts, yeah. in personnel, in skill building, as well as the structure of the teams. Like, it was only until like, 2009 when Gannett like, hired a chief digital officer. Hmm. I mean... <laughs> that's 2009. That's, le- that's less than 10 years ago. Yeah. And and that was an amazing thing. And and I remember that day. And it was, everybody was like, yeah, okay, now the company gets it. And so I think that's when that really big shift happened. Well, also, this industry changes so quickly. I mean, titles change, requirements change. I mean, even now, what you do as a UX researcher, 20 years ago, that didn't exist it may not exist 20 years from now or it may be something different or the, the role may change or branch out in some, you know, kind of different way. Absolutely. There are so many now more tools to use for user experience. So I, I remember in 2010, I went to a conference. I can't remember which one it was in New York. And I saw someone using, uh, I saw a vendor showing an eye tracking machine. And I sat down and I had a demo and I was like, what is this? Mm-hmm. And they were showing me how we can utilize this device to, to improve you, the user experience. And I said, oh my goodness, this, this is groundbreaking. We need this. And so I was able to convince the, the chief digital officer at the time to invest in this. And it, I wouldn't say it completely changed how we, our usability practice inside the company at that time, but Boy, did it ramp it up. And so between the time that we purchased that device, I was inundated with requests from all over the company to use the device to help them improve 
whatever product that they had, internal and mm-hmm. external products. And so just one thing, really, that, that, that device. And so now you have, you know, even now seven years later, you have many more different types of eye tracking capabilities that you can utilize and so many different types of methods that you can use to bring people in the lab and, and understand what their experiences are using various devices and, and products that is, is quite amazing. And what kind of tools are you using now? Can you speak about that? The kind of tools you use now at Facebook to do UX research? The, the one I just mentioned. We have just probably every, every tool in, in the book. So eye tracking, we keep it simple too. So, but we have all of the capabilities where we're able to bring someone in a lab and we're able to walk them through an experience on a mobile device. We're able to record that experience and so that we can document and analyze after we meet with them. So we have all of those capabilities. You know, usability testing is just one tool. We also have other methods such as card sorting, which helps the content strategy. And a lot of these, some people that are listening may not be familiar with a lot of these methods that I'll mention, but that's what UX research is. And so, you know, I think going online and Googling, you know, what card sorting is and, and what use, just what are the tools for usability testing you can, you can certainly get up to speed on those kinds of things. There's card sorting. There is, we also use diaries. And that is, you know, having someone document what their experience is using the product over a period of time. Mm-hmm. And we, so we'll give them a notebook or an online digital tool so that they can go in and input how they're using a, a particular tool that we're trying to get an assessment on. So we have labs where we do a variety of different things, and we have other methods that we use external to the labs where we're able to get insight from people that are using our products. That's really novel. I really like that journal idea, especially if it's for something where you need their input over, say, like 15 days, 30 days, et cetera, to see how their usage patterns might change or evolve through that time. Mm -hmm. That's really powerful stuff. I like that. Typically, we do it probably in a shorter scope of time, okay. maybe, maybe a week or two, because okay. people do get tired of doing it. <laughs> so we have, to, <laughs> we have to use some design protocols that will help us get information quickly. And there, there may be cases where we can do it over 30 days, but most of the time it's like a week or two that we will do that. Well, just to kind of you know switch gears here, sure. I'm kind of interested in knowing more about kind of what inspires you to do this kind of work. Again, this is something that you got into 20 years ago, and you've worked on it a lot as the industry has changed. What motivates you to keep doing this type of work? Good question. I was a history major. I thought that I would be a news reporter Hmm. back when I was in college. I could see that. And I was working on a radio. That's why this whole radio thing is is awesome. Uh I was was working at the radio station. And I began interviewing people for the news portion of the radio station's programming. And that's where I started when I was a freshman. And then I became a radio DJ. And I thought, man, I love this radio thing. This is what I'm going to do. And, but I minored in communications. So I was a history major, minored in communications. And so being a history major, I was curious. Yeah. You know, I was, I was curious about studying how things worked. And after my bachelor's degree, which I received from Appalachian State University in North Carolina, I went to the University of Tennessee and started the master's program because I really didn't really know what I was going to do with that history major. And I didn't want to go and make $15,000 a year as a, as a news reporter in mm-hmm. Fort Wayne, Indiana. <laughs> I didn't want to do that. Right, right. So I went into the master's program. And then that's when I began to study more uh, the business side of media. 
So I got an internship at a radio station. And part of that internship, I was helping the sales team with uh, Arbitron data. And there was a company called Media Audit. I'm not sure if they're still in business, but me the Media Audit research was providing insight to the sales team as to how many people were using or listening to the radio station and buying certain products. Mm -hmm. I thought that was fascinating. And that to me was like, I was like, this is really cool stuff. So I ultimately became a radio sales account manager mm -hmm. and started selling advertising for radio. <laughs> After a couple of years of that, I got tired and I said, there's something better. And then that's when I entered the PhD program. But again, I was curious and I wanted to learn more because that's when I got wind of that. What's, what's this internet thing that people keep talking about? Right, right. So this curiosity led me to the PhD program. And that's when I began to just learn interviewing and learn how to you know, ask people questions. So I basically ask people questions for a living. And so the, the, my curiosity is really what inspires me. Like there's, there's more to learn about certain things. So you went to school mostly in the South. You're from the South originally? Right, I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay, so went to school in North Carolina, went to school then in Tennessee, mm -hmm. you worked in Virginia, now you're out here. Has it been like a big, I would guess by now probably not, but has it been a big culture shift? No, not at all. I mean, I, and this is, comes from just the way I was raised. I mean, my mm -hmm. parents, my dad was in, the, you know, was in the military for a while. He, he, he shared with me stories about his travels. And he said the only way to see the world is that you got to go to the world. Yeah. And, and so I've always relished jobs that were international in, in some respect. And so my first job from the PhD program, I worked for a small media research and consulting firm called Frank Maggot Associates based in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Hmm. I moved from Knoxville, Tennessee to Iowa. All my friends thought I was crazy. It's like, what? What are you doing? You got a PhD. You <laughs> right. Be like a professor somewhere or something. Right. I, was like, I was like, no, I'm moving to Cedar Rapids, <laughs> Iowa. But let me tell you that after two months working there, I found myself doing focus groups in Taipei, Taiwan. Wow. And then in Singapore. And I was like, this is what I get to do as a researcher. And so... The, the idea that you could travel the world to understand how people experience products and services fascinated me to no end. And that's, no, it, was, it wasn't a cultural shift at all. I'm very adaptable and very flexible. And I know that you need to go to places. To, so the, the, the coolest thing about working at Facebook and at companies like Facebook is that, and doing research is that you have to go out to the people. Mm -hmm. And if you study anthropology, you study market need. And you study all these folks that go into communities to understand how those communities behave and operate. And that's, to me, fascinating, is that I remember doing research for the Gannett Company. We were studying how people were using a certain product. I remember waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning, or 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. We recruited people all over the D.C. area, and we, we met them at their homes and traveled with them to their jobs as commuters in D.C. Mm -hmm. to understand what they were using on their phones in order to entertain themselves or communicate with other people throughout their journey. I mean, we had a two-hour commute with someone. And that's fascinating, watching that happen in real life. That's hardcore, especially in D.C. Very much so. Because we were, yeah, we, someone had like an hour-and-a-half commute, and we went on two buses <laughs> with this person and mm -hmm. we walked with them as well as well as get on the metro with them and we just watched them and that's that's really interesting work because you get to see people in their context and how they experience a 
using a device or or a particular product within those contexts. And I mean, wow, if you want to do that, come do UX research. <laughs> have you ever had any mentors or people that have really kind of helped you out along the way? Yeah. I When I was at Frank Maggot Associates, I remember a researcher, the, the, the top researcher there, Dick Haynes, I learned a lot from him about just how to share research. Because if you're a kind of an academic coming out of grad school, you know, you're thinking journal articles. You're thinking, you, know, you don't really know how to like put together a really decent presentation to share back what you learned. The thing that he told me, he said, you got to tell a story. And, and my career has been a career of people telling me stories about how they are experiencing products and that and me aggregating those stories and sharing back with the people who are developing tools. Mm-hmm. And so I really appreciated that. So Dick Haynes was one. There have been people that along the way that I have tried to model in terms of how they approach their craft. And so I've, you know, I've seen researchers who, you know, really run a tight ship. You know, their processes are tight. And that's something that is, you know, was very instructive for me is to make sure that the design is really geared towards answering the questions that are needed in order to provide the right information to the people who are developing the product. Mm-hmm. You know, having a tight, systematic research protocol. You know, though, so people have taught me those kinds of things. I can't name the names right now, but there have been people over the years that I've seen and have watched and picked up tips from. What's the one accomplishment that you're the most proud of so far in your career? I have to say, at it was when I was at the Gannett Company, the company had created this room that no one really knew about that looked like a focus group room. So if you can imagine, if you've been, I don't know, people who are listening, if you've been to a, a focus group room, is like a room that has a, basically a conference room with a table, and then you have this window no two-way window two-way window where people on one side can't see who's behind their window and they created this room and the funny thing is no one at the company i think people knew that it was created but i don't think people knew what to do with it Mm. i had seen it several times this is a focus group room we could be doing research in this room Mm -hmm. and so i met with facilities I met with you know people who were sort of in charge of the room and the AV inside the room. And I said, we want to create a research and insight center. We just want to use this room to do all the research that the company is going to do. And at that time, the looks that I, I got were, sure, whatever, <laughs> go ahead, do it. <laughs> I, I mean, nobody really thought that it was a big deal. Right. But I was excited about it, and my team at the time were really excited about it because we wanted a space that we could actually do work, and we could call it our space. And Mm so we created the Research and Insight Center, and then at that time, we purchased, that's when we purchased the eye tracking device, and it lived there, and we were able to do all of our usability testing there. We were able to retrofit the room to do focus groups and all kinds of other research there, and it became the hub of the corporate research function within Gannett. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited about it. And um, I think that that was, hopefully it's still there and people are still using it. But that's something I'm really proud about. If we asked you as a kid, like think back to you growing up in Charlotte, what did you want to be then? Because I would imagine 
It wasn't UX researcher. <laughs> like, like growing up as a kid, what did you want to be? <laughs> it's very hard to say. I was so in, I was interested in so many things as I look back in junior high school and and, and high school. I was vice president of student body at West Charlotte Senior High School. You know, so maybe I could have been a politician. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if I really knew at that time. I knew my parents were really focused and had me really focused on my education and making the best grades that I could and getting into a really good school. I ended up going to Appalachian State on a full four-year scholarship. Mm. And that's a testament to my parents, like, making me do my work. And, yeah. And, you know, make really good grades. And so I don't know if I had... You know, unlike some people may say, yeah, I want to be a doctor. I want to be an engineer. I don't know if I knew. I know that I wanted to go to a good school. I wanted to, and I wanted to study something interesting, but um, I really didn't know. So I think it's a testament to the fact that, you know, even if you don't have your mind fully made up coming out of high school and into college, the way your journey will evolve sometimes, <laughs> you know, goes in different directions and mm -hmm. you just sort of have to lead, you know, people pick up an interest at various points in time, whether it's when they're a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. Even when I went to graduate school, when I went into the PhD program, mm -hmm. I had no idea why. <laughs> I just thought, you know, this radio sales thing kind of sucks. Yeah. And this internet thing is really hot. I really like it. I'm 25. You know, so I just quit my job and moved back to Tennessee and I said, I'll figure it out. And sometimes <laughs> it takes that and, you know, in order to get you excited about something. I knew I was excited at that time about going back to graduate school and getting a PhD. I thought that mm. that would be awesome because my mother, you know, she had already, she had passed away and she had always wanted me to achieve the highest level of education that I could. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what drove me at that time. So I don't know what I wanted to be when I was, when I was in high school and back in North Carolina, but eventually I figured it out. Do you feel like your parents gave you any support? Oh, Absolutely. I think they were, my mother was certainly supportive of me all the way up to, I mean, she, she passed away when I was a sophomore in, in college. Mm -hmm. uh, but my dad, who passed away just recently, you know, always was behind me 100%. They didn't say, hey, go into this career or that career. They just wanted me to be, to, to do something that I was proud of and to do something that got me ex very excited. And they saw me achieved through high school and and then my father saw me achieve you know throughout and he was always there mm -hmm. graduation always cheerleading for me and so that's i think is important to have people and my sister and all of my family really were behind me the entire way where do you kind of see yourself in the next five years or so like do you think you'll still be here doing ux research at facebook like what's what's the future look like for you Nobody knows what the future holds. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I'm really loving this. I mean, I've only been here for eight months. So, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm very new to Facebook. Okay. So I can see myself here quite some time. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. I'm still learning. I mean, everybody tells you that your first six months at Facebook, you're just really learning. And mm -hmm. as a research manager, my role, because I'm not doing you know, what we call IC work or individual contributor work. That's... You know, I'm managing people who are. I'm helping support them. I'm coaching them. I'm I'm their cheerleader. I'm mm -hmm. helping unblock them. You know, so those are the kinds of things that I'm doing. And this is stretching me in my career. So this is probably one of the most unique jobs I've ever had in my career in that I'm not doing so much of the day-to-day -day 
in the weeds research, I am guiding and providing support to people who are. And, and so I'm loving this. And I'm excited about the things that are coming, you know, in the next few years for Facebook. So I think I'd love to really see how I can push myself as a manager mm-hmm. and grow into this role and learn as much as I can about, you know, what the company is doing and, and how what I can do can have, can have an impact on the company's growth over the next few years. Well, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? I have my LinkedIn profile is probably the best place to go. Just Reggie Murphy. Search for me on LinkedIn. I am there. I do have a, a side hobby, which was voiceover work because of my days in radio. So makes sense. Yeah. RegieMurphy.com. You can see some of my old demos <laughs> if, you, if you want to. Yeah, that was a hobby that I'm still thinking about trying to push forward a little bit. That's just a hobby of mine. But I think all of my UX research work and things I'm doing in my career right now can be found on, on, on LinkedIn. I also have Twitter at Reggie Murphy. And I have a research website that I aggregate all of the um, UX and innovation work that I see across the internet. And it's on one of those paperly uh, websites. And you okay. can find that on my Twitter page. You can go to at Reggie Murphy and you can see all of those um, all of those articles and, and the website that you can go to on Twitter, at Reggie Murphy. All right. Sounds good. Well, Reggie Murphy, thank you again so much for taking time out of your day, for speaking with me. I really like a lot about what you had to say with how UX research impacts design. I just think for myself, like I'm an entrepreneur, and when I talk to clients, especially when it's about usability testing and things like that, they always scoff at it like, oh, why do we need that? Why do we have to do that? And I think the fact that you're able to explain it on an enterprise level as to why it's important, I think for folks that are listening, they'll see what they can do to apply it in other ways. But aside from that, just hearing about your journey, which is a very unconventional journey into the design community, but in a way where you're not really a designer. So I hope for people that are listening, they don't think, oh, this is kind of weird. But I know a lot of you all are into UX. And if this is something that you think might be a good skill set to pick up, definitely hope that uh, Reggie was able to give you some great information. But man, thank you again so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I encourage everyone that's listening to reach out to me. If you have any questions or would like some more information about what I do, I'm happy to talk with you about it. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Reggie Murphy and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Reggie and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook Design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Their attitude may be playful, but their business is serious. Sign up for a free account today, MailChimp. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain names. Just search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by R.J. Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. 
Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please do me a huge favor. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It only takes a minute or two. It really, really helps the show by bumping us up in the iTunes rankings for Design Podcast, which means that more people will discover all of these great interviews that we've had here. Plus, I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work that we're doing with the podcast and with the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.